Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for Social Flight Live for Air Show Night. And uh, I just appreciate uh, so much for everyone joining us tonight, as well as, of course, our featured guest of the evening. And so um, I'd like to take a quick minute before we get started quick to uh, talk a little bit about our program. Um, so first of all, takeoffs for takeout that we've been during, using during the crisis to help support aviation, restaurants, FBOs, local businesses. And uh, we keep getting great, great feedback and messages from all of you who are social flight users that have been out there. And the featured one that we have for tonight is the one that you can see here, Carthage, North Carolina, Bravo, Quebec One, The Pick and Pig, uh, Wanda Jackson and David Schlappbach. I uh, hope I didn't uh, pronounce that too, uh, uh, mangled that too badly. And they sent us this great picture of being able to get out while still having social distancing with safe flying practices and be able to still get out there, fly, stay current, and uh, support all these aviation businesses. And so we really, really appreciate that. And it's just such a great way to help us support our community so that all of these uh, businesses and the general aviation world as we know it is there for us when the crisis is over and uh, it's time for things to go back to normal. And so a uh, great program there. If you are not already a member of Social Flight, please to stay up on programs like this, uh, go to socialflight.com or download the free Social Flight mobile apps for uh, Android and Apple devices, completely free, tens of thousands of events, webinars and programs like this evening, and also lots and lots of ways that you can win prizes as well. And so tonight is air show night, and uh, we'd like to begin with our two guests here, Michael Goulian. Michael is one of the world's most decorated aerial demonstration pilots. During his 30-year career, his signature approach of athletic, aggressive flying has made him a worldwide air show fan favorite. In addition to earning the U.S. National Unlimited Aerobatics Champion and the National Advanced Aerobatics Championship, he's one of only seven pilots ever to earn the triple crown of industry honors for air show flying, the Art Shaw Memorial Award, the Bill Barber Award, and the ICAS Sword of Excellence. Uh, he further holds the distinction of being an honorary member of the legendary U.S. Navy Blue Angels and another Massachusetts native here with myself and Rob Holland. He's competed in the Red Bull Air Race World Championship through 2019, flying number 99, the Edge 540 in this series. And every year he can be found performing at air shows across the United States. And Michael is joined tonight by Rob Holland, a good friend of mine, also here from New England, Rob's rise to the top started as a young airshow fan in New England, up here with the rest of us. Earning his pilot's license while still a teenager, Rob began flying aerobatics almost immediately, all while building valuable flight time, doing just about 
everything. He has been a corporate pilot, a commuter pilot, a banner tower, a flight instructor, ferry pilot, and he's even operated his own aerobatic school. Now in his 18th year as a full-time airshow pilot, Rob's distinguished, him, him, distinguished himself by blazing a trail of innovation and developing maneuvers that have never before been seen at air shows. His accomplishments include nine-time consecutive U.S. National Aerobatic Champion, five-time consecutive World Four-Minute Freestyle Champion, 10-time U.S. Four-Minute Freestyle Champion, the 2015 World Air Games Freestyle Gold Medalist, the 2012 Art Scholl Award for Showmanship, 2008 World Aerobatic Champion, eight-time U.S. Aerobatic Team member, and 28 medals in aerobatic competition. So that is a mouthful for both of these unbelievably accomplished gentlemen. And with that, I would like to ask both of them to join us now. And uh, come on here. Hi, guys. How are you both doing? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for Great. joining Thanks, us here buddy. at Social Flight Live. Love the backdrop over there, by the way, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. it's a little bit of a toy box here with all the airplanes in there. That's yeah, the whole idea, if right? You know, if, uh, if you're going to be, uh, have to have you know, the isolation during the crisis, uh, if you can do it around airplanes, uh, it's all good. And I know, Rob, a few times when I spoke with you, you were like, yeah, don't have a good reception. I'm in the hangar. And I was like, perfect. That's <laughs> <laughs> And as you can see, of course, uh, uh, behind me here as well, we've got a little bit of an aviation project going on. So I think as long as we're all as surrounded as possible by airplanes during this time, that's uh, about the best medicine we can have. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to start with a little bit about both of your stories. Um, I think that it, it's really amazing to me when uh, when people can rise to the top of their craft and in some cases almost a little bit against the odds and the only reason i say that is because only a week ago there was snow on the ground up here and 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 so many uh, airshow pilots and and competitors are from climates where they can just do whatever they want all year round to stay proficient and have the community that supports that all year round but both of you came from uh, and got to where you are uh, in, in a different world in New England where you don't have a lot of top performers come from. So, um, uh, Mike, start by telling me a little bit and tell everyone a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Well, you know, I think if you look at Rob and I in general, we're probably two cases of people that are so passionate about what we do and, and the flying that we've done that you know, time and perseverance, it just pays off in the end. And it doesn't matter where you live, that you're exactly right. So most of Robin, our competitors are from Texas, California, and Florida. And for a couple of Yankees up here where there's snow on the ground all the time, it, it wasn't really heard of until I started. And then, and then Rob uh, came along as well. And it's really just one of those things where nobody told me that I couldn't do it. So I didn't, I didn't know any different. And, and uh, it's one of those things where aviation is all I lived for when I was learning to fly. I, was, I grew up in my dad's flight school. And when I was a kid, 18, 19 years old, I was the fueler. So I would fuel up my dad's 15 flight school planes, get in my pits, go out and practice, beat all the airplanes back. They would come back. I'd fuel them all up again. They would take off. I would go practice. And I would just do that for three times a day for 
gosh, months and months and months on end because I started flying even while I was still in high school. I was doing that. So it was it started on the weekends, then the summers. And then once I was in college, I went to college near near Boston. So essentially I could fly. And, and it's just a, that's the thing that I don't know what else I would have done. And nobody just ever said you you shouldn't be great in aerobatic flying because you have to live in a sunshine state because obviously we did. We don't. And we both uh, we both made it, you know. Wow, that's uh, and and that I, that's actually kind of funny. The image of you going out flying, but checking your watch and having to get back in time to fuel the all the other planes that are out there earning money for your dad's Absolutely. business. Absolutely, exactly. Well, I would. Well, I was burning gas. Exactly, exactly. Now, Rob, um, uh, obviously, we we go. God, what twenty years back? I, I remember my first introduction, of course, to you was when a mutual friend of ours, Chuck Burkhead, had said, "Hey, you you've got to meet this guy." He's, you know, brilliant and, and incredibly talented and he needs a sponsor. And we worked out being able to, to get an, an early sponsorship at a company I was with back then doing aviation technology. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. So I've just always been infatuated with uh, aviation. And um, when I was young, my dad brought me to an air show and I saw people flying upside down and that was it. I was hooked. You know, all the model airplanes I had from that point on were hanging upside down from the ceiling. <laughs> so it was just kind of a mission I'd like to do aerobatics. I didn't really know how to do it, how to get into it. I went to college. I went to Danny Webster College when it was still around. Um, got all my aviation ratings there. Um, met some people at the Nashville Airport to kind of get my taste for aerobatics and flying upside down. Made friends, still friends to this, this day. And um, just built up as much experience as I could. Um, Eventually, I actually, I started working for Michael at his flight school in, uh, at Hanscom Airfield, teaching aerobatics. Um, that's kind of when I had the eye-opening thing where, huh, you can fly aerobatics and have other people pay for it. So <laughs> yeah. I did that for... Did you start yeah. beating everybody back who was out there flying so that you could yeah. uh, t teach them aerobatics? No, but it's amazing how much you can learn teaching other people. So it was, it was a really, really good experience. It was great working at a school. Um, I learned an incredible amount there. Uh, eventually, I ended up leaving and started my own aerobatic flight school, fleece some airplanes, and uh, made a deal with the gentleman who had a pit store I was using to start using it for competition at air shows. And that's really what started the snowball and made it work. So from when I started flying to when I actually started doing aerobatics full-time was about 10 years. So it was wow. a long time of just trying to figure it out. Do you remember the first time that you competed? Uh, yeah, very well. I did horrible. What was, what, what was that about? Because I think for a lot of people, they, they, they watch you guys perform and it's pretty hard to imagine that, that first time, like how someone, how someone makes that first step. But obviously you can go and take aerobatic lessons at, at schools. How, what's that first step? What was your first step to, to competition? It was actually working at Michael's school. Um, I, I knew I wanted to be an air show pilot. I didn't know anything about competition. And I started teaching executive flyers and started learning about competition, and they would bring students to a competition. So my first competition was in Orange Mass. I flew mm -hmm. Decathlon and Sportsman. I flew 90% of the first sequence backwards and zeroed the whole thing. But it, it really, I mean, it, I was hooked. I just had to... Pursue that also at the same time. People ask me all the time, do I like competition better or air shows better? And it's, it's really a 50-50 split for me. I enjoy both, the two different disciplines. Wow. And, and what about you, Michael? Do you remember the first time that you actually made that leap? 
Yeah. So my first competition was also in a decathlon, a rented decathlon, and uh, it was in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And for some of the people that have been around a long time, the Friday night event was at a person's house. And for people that remember the French Connection, yep. Danielle and Montaigne were there. And here I am in a strange house with a bunch of people that I've nev never met before, 17 years old. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my God, that's the French connection, right? Like people caps, you've right? only read about. Yeah, they flew cap captains and people you only have read about in books and, and seen in magazines. And, and here I was like super star, starstruck that I was in the same place with them. But I want to talk about one thing that, that Rob mentioned about starting at our school and leasing an airplane and starting airshow flying and, and getting going. And it, that just goes to show you that if you want to do it, it doesn't matter the type of income you have or, or your background, you can make it happen. And it was the same with me. So I grew up in a flight school, but as everybody knows, flight school people don't have tons of money. My family, we weren't rich, right? We we're just a uh, middle income family like everybody else in the world. And my first pits was a $12,500 pits S1C. And I, I got a loan for that. And my, the deal with my dad was you pay the airplane and the insurance and I'll pay for your gas and I'll let the mechanics work on it. And then my second pits was a pits S1S, which was probably like $28,000 and then a pits S1T. And I started flying corporate flying King airs and, and uh, citations and things like that during that time. And then somebody took a chance on me and gave me a, a Stoddicker. John Stoddicker got me a monoplane uh, for like, $90,000, which was really worth about 150,000, but they believed in me. And then it took forever to get uh, to the equipment that would allow me to sort of win a national championship and do that. And today I'm sitting in front of the very first airplane that I actually paid the entire loan off all the time. After 32 years, about three months ago, I paid the last payment to my bank for this extra. So today, and the reason I tell you that story is like Rob and I come from similar backgrounds with parents that super supported us, right? And it didn't matter how much money you had, it was the passion that you had. So people say to us now, I get emails all the time, how do I get a sponsor and start in the air show? Maybe we lost him for a second. Okay. I really nice and like, why don't you learn how to fly, become somebody, and hey, then Michael, get, we, we lost whoop, you for a quick second. Uh, we'll, we put, we'll put sponsors with you, right? Yeah. We lost, we lost you for a quick second. Can you repeat that going back to people ask you, how do you get uh, a sponsor? Yeah. Yeah. So people, but now what you hear is, is people always hear you say, uh, you know, I need a sponsor. And then. I want to, I want to start to fly air shows. And really what you want to do is learn to fly first, go show them that you know how to do it, be determined, show them you're determined, and then the sponsors will come to you. And, and today everybody wants it the, the, the wrong way. And I think Rob and I will both tell you that we are overnight successes after 20 years. And that's just the way that life works, right? You know, I think that's yeah. true in, in, in a lot of different areas, right? Uh, and I mean, Rob, I, I remember, uh, at least from from trying to help you as an as an early sponsor, that's exactly how it was. Your your success was drawing the sponsorship, not the other way around. Yeah, you got to learn to fly the airplane first. Michael once told me this 
saying, I guess it's in the race car world, do you want to be a, do you want to race cars or do you want to be a race car driver? It seems like a lot <laughs> of people right, exactly. <laughs> these days, they want to be air show pilots. They don't necessarily want to fly air shows. And there's really a difference between the two. You've got to have the passion for the flying, put in the time and, you know, get good. Get and I guess, the, I, guess, I guess the other message that goes with that, of course, is that for someone who passionately loves to do it, if you have the talent and the dedication and you just pursue doing it, that the success can follow. The, the, the support can follow. Uh, you find a way to make it happen. You just take that first step and, and focus on whatever it takes to, to, to fly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, my, my sponsors are associated with me because they believe in my dream and my passion and not so much what I do. Right. And, and the same thing with me, I believe in the people that are partnered with me because they're awesome companies and awesome people. And it's as much a personal relationship as it is a business relationship. That makes a lot of sense. Definitely. So, um, when for, for each of you, like Rob, why don't you start, when do you feel like that turn that, that turned the corner for you and the success really started happening. Where was where where did you feel like you hit your your stride? Not in terms of sponsors, in terms of uh, you know hitting the performance and getting the recognition and starting to 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 really uh, make your name. Am I there yet? <laughs> <laughs> You're there. Trust me. Um, I don't know. I I don't really look at it that way. I mean, I I have a lot of goals I've set for myself and. I want to get there eventually, but I really want to kind of enjoy this journey along the way. There's, there's so much to see and explore and experience. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, when you get to the final goal and what's after that, I guess you could set new goals. But um, I think part of the motivation of to keep going and keep pushing and keep trying to get better and innovate or whatever is not feeling like you're there. And right. You're still trying to get there. You're still trying to push. Right. Well, certainly that makes sense. Was so there wasn't any seminal moment of of not, certainly not being there because I know both of you are continuing to to hone your craft and and just go bigger and bigger. Um, but there wasn't a point that you felt like finally you had a stride going or something like 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 that of being able. To... Yeah, I mean, there was no like eureka moments. Um, mm. Everything to me is just setting goals and, and trying to get there. You know, I talked about that first competition I did when I was teaching at Michael School playing sportsman. After that contest, I actually set, I wrote down and set a goal for myself. I said, in 10 years, I want to be a national aerobatic champion. And it was wow. like 10 years, two months later that I won my first championship. So it's just having your sights on something and, and going for it. Don't, just don't have a plan B. Everyone falls back on plan B because it's easier. So mm-hmm. don't have a plan B, have a plan A and go for it. That, that's almost like writing that check to yourself that some people have done. Like you, you literally wrote 10 years one uh, aerobatic national aerobatic champion. That's impressive. That's impressive. Any, any thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah. You know, I, I think like Rob said is that there are milestones along the way that yes, you, you win this, you're awarded that you've done this. To me, it's still uh, the people that you meet, how amazing from all walks of life. Uh, so from the air show side of things, or I would say, from my competition side of things, you build relationships of, that are based around flying that you can't imagine how, how great that is. And then in the airshow world, you, you know, you talk about airshow flying and then the, from the military friends that you make, 
like the Blue Angels, like the Thunderbirds, like the single ship demo guys. You just have a you have a camaraderie and a kinship with those people that are amazing. And then in my life in the Rebel Air Race, all my friends from around the world, you know, literally I can go to 15 different countries in the world and stay at a friend's house. And you only get that through aviation. And, and so when I think back about it, it's it's the people that I remember more than I remember the flight or something that you won. Uh, and as Rob said, it's it's really the journey. And still to me, I, I open the hangar in the morning. To, I come to the office and I look in this amazing hangar with this amazing airplane. And I look down and I think I still can't believe that it's actually my airplane, right? And uh, it's I can remember I was in Pompano Beach, Florida with my dad. This is 25 years ago. And they're like, Michael, uh, Myron, my, my dad's name was Myron. They're like, Myron, Michael needs an extra 230 because that's the airplane that will take him somewhere. And my dad said to Clint McHenry at the time, a, a great aerobatic champion, Clint, an extra 230 is $85,000. Where could I ever come up with $85,000, right? And, and today, $85,000 does not even buy you a wing on an extra 330 SC or, or an MXS, right? And so I just still feel that I'm super privileged to do this. And why would I ever stop flying? Because it's still a gift, right? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk for a minute about that Red Bull uh, series that, that, that you've been a part of. How, how did you get in, involved in that? And what was it like making that, that transition? Because that seems to me like uh, that's, a, that's a, maybe uses all the same techniques, but that, that's something very specific to learn, isn't it? Uh, you might have cut out. Um, can oh. you tell me a little bit about the Red Bull uh, uh, process and how you got involved? <laughs> Yeah, so I, uh, I wasn't in the very beginning, but I was like year number two or so. And, and in the beginning, uh, the Peter Besignier was essentially the guy that was in charge of trying to help the series go but stay safe. And he looked around the world at people that he knew had amazing competition background experience in their home country, but also were really good low to the ground flying air shows uh, and also didn't have anything to prove. I think in the Rebel Air Race, that was a big deal in the beginning because it was it was pretty dangerous flying at the time and we were learning as we were going. So that was a big part of it. Um, and so I, I started and the types of flying are just so different. And as the Rebel Air Race progressed, it used to be fly what you bring and see how that goes to in the last three or four or five years you were essentially flying the line that a computer would predict for you for the winds and the temperature and everything else. And uh, you, were, you were as much trying to be a robot as you could in the plane. And the technology behind it and the teams behind it were amazing. So like Red Bull Air Races are amazing when you're winning and they're the worst thing when you lose, right? And uh, you, get the, you get such an emotion and, you know, you're in, like, we won the race in Abu Dhabi and, like, man, you didn't sleep for three days, but then you go to the next race and you're ninth and you're like, oh, my God, I'm 6,000 miles from home and I wish the airplane left in 15 minutes, right? So it, it was a huge uh, thing of emotions with the racing for sure. Wow. Now, both of you do so, uh, uh, some pretty varied types of flying, uh, e even now in, in the different work that you do. I know um, uh, what's involved in things like when you're flying with the Blue Angels. I know, Rob, we just showed a video earlier. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what's involved when you do air shows and you're working in coordination with military aircraft or with others? 
it's uh, what it comes down to is just trusting relationships. You, know, you get to know the teams over there, know the guys, you're in the industry together, they become friends. And um, eventually, if, if you're fortunate enough to build a trust with them, then you can afford some opportunities um, to like do photo shoots and whatnot. And it's very thorough. I mean, you got to really brief the flight and you got to fly the brief and have a bunch of professionals involved with it. Uh, you can't really improvise. So it's, it's very fulfilling. It's amazing. It's you know, every time I still see a picture like the upside down of one of the blue angels behind me, it's like, I can't believe I was actually there. What a, what an amazing experience, but it's, it's pretty fun. It's, it's very cool. And uh, just an absolute privilege to be able to do and sometimes it's multiple air- aircraft, not even just them, right? Like it, like if, if flights with other performers or something like that, all coordinated together. Yeah, uh, I've done flights with Michael before, Sean uh, Tucker, and same thing. You just have to coordinate. It. You have to come up with a plan. You got to go to the brief, brief the flight very thoroughly. Um, it's ninety nine point nine percent of the time. It's like during one of their practices, they allocate a little bit of time at the end to be able to go to the photo shoot so they're not. You know, spending resources to just go up and take pictures already in the air, anyways. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Is there something? Uh, is there one experience in particular, or anything like that, out of your flying that that really sticks out? That was some unique opportunity, or something that uh, that that you found especially memorable? Actually, uh, there's quite a few. But this last November in Pensacola, uh, I'd been talking with the boss of the Blues for. The whole year about getting together and doing a shoot with the whole team. We decided to do it at Pensacola, and they actually did a dedicated launch just to go do the photo shoot. Went out to a restricted area and spent about twenty five minutes out there getting shots. And what I really enjoyed about it is that I actually got to get a solo shot with the boss of the team, which you very rarely get because it's usually leading everybody around. And then what made it really memorable is after that, got back to Pensacola and went to their briefing room. They surprised me and made me an honorary Blue Angel. Oh my God, that's so awesome. <laughs> I'm still pitching myself about it. It hasn't quite sunk in yet. So that means, so both of you are honorary Blue Angels. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I like that. That's pretty amazing. Um, how about you, Michael? Is there anything that sticks out? I, I mean, uh, you know, when, when it comes to the Blue Angels, I think that's, again, that's one of those things where very few people are afforded the opportunity to do that. And, and it's a thing of mutual trust and, and mutual respect, for sure. And um, when you talk about being an honorary Blue Angel, essentially, uh, we... Uh-oh, I think we lost him again. ...and I in the industry... We're the constant in that relationship and the Blue Angels come and go for a job to sort of be a friend of the team during good times and, and bad uh, because we've been there. We've seen the past teams and, and we, we know that history and to just be a, a trusted part of that team um, is a bit is a big deal. And it's one of the things. So it's really what we can do for the Blue Angels, not what the Blue Angels can do for us. And I think that's the difference uh, in that relationship is we're there to support those guys that are uh, essentially in their performance role for, for two years, but they don't have the history of the air show business. Like for instance, Rob and I and, and Sean Tucker would. So there's, so it's kind of a little bit of a two way street. Uh, uh, obviously you trying to give back and support the organizations uh, as, as well as having the opportunity to fly with them. hundred percent. And it's kind of interesting, of course, because you are who you are and therefore year after year, 
you are who you are, but the blue angels themselves rotate and that changes as to who's on the team. And it's more of an organization and an entity in that regard. Yeah, it really is, you know, and, and, and what, what they, what they say is, is if you're a blue angel, the whole idea is to continue to build the legacy that's already been there before you. Mm -hmm. And you're part of a big, you're part of a big organization and the blue angels are, are something that you can't touch. You can't feel what it, what it is and what has become is something that only the team members can contribute to in a positive way. And I think that's, they would tell you that's their job is to leave the blue angels better than when they found it. Um, and, but to understand that they're part of a team and that team has been built on the people before them. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, one of the things obviously is pilots are, are often uh, interested in things that they've learned from challenges or, or tough times that they've experienced. I remember um, uh, talking with you quite a while ago, Rob, um, when you had a tough situation uh, go on that, uh, that uh, if I recall, had, had something to do with a, a hammerhead and, and a rudder problem. Can you tell me about that? That, yeah, that was a long time ago. That was 2006, I think. I was flying a uh, Ultimate biplane that I was using for air shows at the time. It was actually a torque roll that backed up really good, and then it kept backing up, and then I felt like it backed up too far, so I tried to get around, and then it kept backing up. And when it finally went around, it basically slammed my foot right off the rudder pedal, and um, it actually bent the rudder about 15 degrees or so, enough that when I had full right rudder and I was still yawing to the left. So it was through a lot of luck and a, a lot of break, I got the plane down the ground, but it was, a, it was a learning experience. I mean, one of the things we do when we're airship pilots is we try to have margins, we try to have gates, we try to have set altitudes. It's all for reasons just like that. So if something goes wrong, you have a recovery zone to be able to you know, get the situation fixed and um, a safety margin. And it, it paid off that day in, in gross. Right. I mean, I think it's important for people to understand, obviously, that uh, that it's not false risk that's involved in doing aerobatics and especially during the doing the high end performances that both of you do. It's 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 real risk and things, you know, do happen. And and if you, you train and you learn from it, obviously. Um, yeah. How about you, Michael? Go ahead, Rob. Did you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, I mean, there, there absolutely is a lot of risk, and that's one of the reasons you really got to be smart about this this game that we play, to try to mitigate that risk as much as possible, you know, by putting gates, by having margins, by knowing the numbers, knowing the altitudes, and being disciplined enough to actually stick to them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Rob in that um, people always ask, are you afraid? And, you know, the answer is, Am I afraid? No. If I was afraid, I wouldn't do it. But do I have a super healthy respect for what I'm about to do? 100%. Is it, is, is it serious, serious business? 100%. And uh, today, I think when I look at flight training in general, people do uh, you know, power off descents and simulated engine failures kind of like, oh, I have to check the box. But they don't really look at it. They don't really understand. They don't, they don't think about really the consequences of what they're going to do when they go flying. But I think Rob and I, we know that and, and we know that it could ha anything could happen to us as well. And that's, I think that's the difference between, you know, professionals and recreationals, uh, aviators when it comes to at least our business is that you, you respect that and you have to know that. So every time you go to get in the airplane, 
uh, you love it, but it is a hundred percent serious, serious game. And so to talk about, you know, what happened to me, I, I was telling you guys earlier, I've done a bunch of stupid things in airplanes, which I'd rather not talk about today, but there's, uh, there's, you know, one of the things that happened to me probably that was, that scared me the most is I was practicing for the nationals in only Texas, just outside of Fort Worth, uh, which is where the air tractor factory is. And I was pointed straight at the ground and I was going to do a three quarter outside snap roll on a vertical line. So I'm about 12, 1400 feet in the air. And to do an outside snap roll, you push the stick forward, the airplane stalls in a negative angle, you add rudder, it rotates and you stop. And so I, and you know, Rob and I would, you would both say we're probably pretty hard on, on equipment. And when you are going to snap roll an airplane like that, you use all the force that you, you can do because you want to make the airplane really stall quickly. And I went to snap roll the airplane to, to try to stall the wing on a vertical line. And the airplane barely moved. The stick moved a long way. And then all of a sudden, I've got all this pain in my hands. And I look up, and my knuckles are all bloody because they hit the instrument panel. And I immediately knew that just in a half of a half of an instant that I had broken the stick. I didn't know how much. And so I reached down very gently and pulled on the stick and then assisted it with the trim and was able to pull the airplane out. I don't know. It probably... I have no idea. I'm going to guess 500 feet, four or 500 feet, very gently, and then recovered it and went out and climbed and, and thought about trying to jump out of the airplane. And Rob knows I'm a chicken. I've actually never jumped out of an airplane, even though I've worn a parachute for 30 years. Um, that's another story. And so I was, <laughs> so I was able to, there was just a, uh, the way that the, the stick was basically butt welded, it came straight up and it was at an angle and then went up and I broke it here but there was just a tiny little bit of the metal left. And I was able to basically just coax the airplane, essentially using the rudder just to not put any force on the ailerons and just kind of and land. And then I got in, shut the, shut the engine off, opened the canopy, took the stick, twisted it and gave it to my coach, Sergei Boriak. And oh uh, that scared me. That scared me quite a lot. And it's one of those things I called my dad and I told him the story and he's like, don't tell your mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know and, but the truth be told is and i heard footsteps in the cockpit for a year right and that's and i don't think i was i wasn't nervous the next day or the day after that or the week after that but that was one of those things where if i had hit the ground nobody would have known why it would have been a pilot error thing or or whatever um so when we talk about sort of respect for the machine uh, that's the, that's the big deal. You have to, we don't, there's no fixing in, in my business. We just replace it. Right. And, and, uh, we learned a lot from that. So again, but I'm not superhuman. Like I said, I was, I was nervous for a year in the cockpit after that. You just, cause it was such a traumatic experience that it took a while to get over that. And only, and the only way to get over it is to do it and do it again and do it again and right. do it again and do it again, just to keep building back sort of confidence, just a fraction, a fraction, a fraction, a fraction, a fraction over a whole year's time. Right. Right. Now, both, both of you, as you mentioned, are both uh, pilots that, that push the aircraft about as hard as anyone can. Right. And, uh, and that's the result of your maneuvers. How, but you're also both very creative in, in what you come up with. How do you, when you, when you come up with new things, how, 
I guess this may sound kind of, uh, you know, ignorant, but how, how does that happen? How do you actually, I mean, especially like Rob, for example, you've got some maneuvers that, that, that I've seen your airplane do that I'm still convinced an airplane can't do. I'm, it, you just somehow uh, convince everyone it's happening. But what, how do you invent when you're at that level of aerobatics? It's a process. I mean, I think it's just a mindset and, you know, I've, I've always just wanted to try to do something different. To me, it seemed like aerobatics, there's always like this, this sharp climb where people figure things out. And there's a long period of time where there's a plateau. Everyone's just copying everyone else trying to do the same thing. And it's just when I got involved, it seemed like we're in a plateau and everyone was trying to do basically the same stuff. Not everyone, but most everyone. And I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to try to do something that would evolve the sport, kind of elevate it and try to be as creative as I can. So it's just, you know, thinking about I wonder if an airplane can do whatever. And the process for me is I just think about it for what seems like forever, for months. And I think about the, the gyroscopics, the dynamics, and what it could turn into, and just all the possibility of trying to make it work before so, I actually go in the airplane and try it for the first time. And probably 90% of the time, you go, yep, no, an airplane can't do that. But every now and then, you do, you do come upon something, and it does work. So when you come, when you, for example, our end over end, you know, or taking the airplane in a direction that looks like an airplane shouldn't be going that way because the wind isn't going over the wings that way. Um, so you're saying that you figure it out, essentially you imagine on the ground what you would want the airplane to do and you work from that point. So you're, you, as opposed to like kind of getting up there and thinking, what happens if I do this? Um, yeah, no, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll do something that turns into something else and I'll be like, wait a minute, that was kind of something. And, and, but that will trigger the process of going down, thinking about it, trying to figure out what happened and how do you duplicate it. But sometimes it's just wake up at 2 in the morning and go, I wonder if an airplane can do whatever it is, and then just go through the process of trying to make it work. Now that inside tumble thing that I do, I was thinking about it for a long time, and then I was practicing it for almost two years before I actually put it into an air show. So it's, it's, it's a long process. And if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. You want it 150% of the time to come out the same way. And you also have to fit it into a sequence where the energy before it will make it work, but it will work for the maneuvers that come after it. So there's a lot of, a lot of thought that goes into it. And is there anything other than altitude that you have to be considering to make sure you're still within the margins of what the aircraft can do? Well, I mean, the biggest thing you always have to worry about is the ground, right? That's the, the ground always wins, so yeah, so, yeah. You, you you practice high and um, you figure out your margins at a reasonable altitude. You know, worst case scenario, what do I need to recover? Make sure that works 100 percent of the time, and then you actually add some altitude to it just for a, a what if factor. That makes sense, Michael. How about you when it comes to the creative side? Yeah, we so um, yeah we have a saying is you want to fly two mistakes high, not just one mistake high, right? And <laughs> and uh, I had a coach that always said. Um, you want to make sure that you're always aware of the big gorilla, right? The ground is the big gorilla. So you want to make sure you're part of it. Actually, um, the reality of it is I'm not as nearly as creative as Rob is. And Rob's, he's pretty humble. I think, honestly, in the aerobatic world that I've been involved with for 25, 30 years worth of, of world-level competition, there's been two people that have really sort of propelled the 
freestyle side of the sport forward. Xavier de la Perrant was probably the first one. He's in about 1994, 1995. He's a 1994 world champion as a kid, French kid, 20, probably 25, six years old at the time, just had an incredibly creative brain. Uh, and if you knew him, you could see he was an artist in the sky. And so he just thought about aviation differently. And then I think there's Rob and uh, those guys, they I think their strength is their artistic ability in the, in the sky, um, in, in their creativity. And, you know, some of it is the airplanes that they're flying, but most of it is them. Right. And so honestly, I, I'm not as creative as either of those two guys. And I think I, I built a career out of people going, Oh, that is a clear, that guy is a, he's a surgeon in the sky. He's a perfectionist. Everything's perfect. Every line is great. Every role is great. And I, I try to stay uh, very true to competition stuff, but also being able to put all kinds of the tumbling gyroscopic things in there, but in such a way that they're harmonious with the lines and angles that I'm creating. So it's a, so when you look at Sean Tucker or who's way to the right, you look at Michael Goulian, who's probably um, in the middle. And then you look at Rob Holland, who's way to the left side from that side, from a creativity standpoint, they're just three different ways. But I think the thing that the, that the best pilots have achieved that there's not many, but the, uh, I always wanted people to look up in the sky, whether it was a purple airplane, a green airplane, or a pink airplane, and say, oh, that's Goulian flying, because I can tell. And, right. and that's the thing is that, um, and it comes from inside of you, and it's not something you can teach somebody. Some people have it, and some people don't, right? And it's one of those things where I think Rob and I have been lucky enough where we've been able to create a style that's visible from the ground that's our own and me that's that's what makes me proud and i i try to stay true to that right and um you know could i try to do what rob does sure but then you're just trying to be like rob or you want to try to do what somebody else does sure but then you're just trying to be like them and and for me um my personality the way that i fly all of that kind of stuff i think my air show it uh, is indicative of, of me. And that's what you get in the sky is somebody that's going to give 110%. That's the, like, if I don't get out of the airplane and I'm completely out of breath and sweating from head to toe, then I didn't give it my all. And that's what people, that's what I want them to see is here's a person that gave everything that they had flew as hard as they could for 11 minutes and, and, uh, gave it everything. And that's what I think that's what they appreciate. That makes perfect sense. And I, and I will say that is exactly the truth. I mean, obviously, uh, planes change color, but the plane behind you isn't the plane I saw last year in terms of colors. Um, everything changes with that. And yet I know that uh, whether it's at Oshkosh or Sunday Fund or some other performance, if if I'm walking the show and there's a sh- and, and I look up, I know, I know it. Oh, that's, oh, there's Mike Goodwin. Oh, there's Rob Holland. No question about it. And that's, I think that's one of the beauties of aviation in general, whether it's performing or whether it's just what niche that someone chooses to go into on their own in aviation is everything's got an identity to it. And it's perfecting where you are within that identity that, uh, that I see in both of your performances. And I think is an opportunity for anyone, whether they want to be the best mechanic or they want to build a champion experimental aircraft or they just want to be the best corporate pilot they can be or whatever they want yeah. to take. With. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. If you look at Rob and I, and then if you take the Blue Angels into the picture, there's one of the things that I think you would you would learn is that we're never too proud to learn from somebody else. Uh, we're never too proud to learn uh, from each other. And we always know that we're, we're, we want to be better tomorrow. And that's one of the things that's weird to me about general aviation is that pilots are proud and they're weird. Like there's this thing that Cirrus has now with the Cirrus IQ and, and it's the thing where the airplane is re- recording data. Right? And hopefully someday they'll be able to use it for maintenance, but also for flying purposes, right? And and it's been this vitriolic fight on the internet about, I don't want anybody judging me and I don't want people to use it against me. And I'm like, why? Just fly better, right? Like what's wrong with saying, hey, I'm, I'm afraid I fly too fast on approach or that ILS wasn't great or that I, I didn't, I didn't switch the needles to localizer in time or whatever. Like, why are you afraid? Just be better, right? It's just a weird thing for me that um, there's people that are afraid in general aviation of exposing their weakness. Rob and I sit there every spring, summer and fall, like getting naked in front of each other in the sky going, Rob, help me. Like, make me better. Like, what not, do you not see? Literally. Not literally. <laughs> not literally. Not literally. But but that's the thing. It's like, hey, show me what you have. Let's make it better. And that that's, a that's I think, what all champions want is they want the, the best people to make them better, right? That makes that's a lot of sense. That's the side of it, too. I mean, you can be as creative as you want, but you have no idea what the airplane looks like from inside the airplane. So right. having somebody on the ground and working with someone like Michael or whoever I'm working with at the time, actually like watching and making suggestions or that might seem like the coolest thing in the world of the cockpit, but it doesn't like anything from the outside. You know, it, it's a huge help. So we all kind of have each other's backs and we're all willing to work with each other. And that's what it takes. It takes a lot of input and a lot of critiquing from, from others to help really fine tune it and make it right. You know, um, we had Josh Flowers was on with, uh, with the other folks uh, in our show last week and talked about something which was really interesting and it's for all pilots. And that's that difference between when he brought up, you know, it's not currency that we should be concerned about as a general aviation population. It's proficiency. I mean, there's a difference. And sure, you can be current. You can check some boxes. But that's not what makes the best pilot. And, and I think that's whether uh, that's something that everyone can apply, whether you're flying a 152 and trying to get your license or whether you're uh, just flying for fun or whether you're at the top of your craft trying to keep going with no end in sight like the two of you. Yeah. I, you know, there's, I've always approached it. There's, there's the envelope of the airplane, right? You can't exceed. If you go outside of that, you're going to break something. But then there's your ability envelope and your comfort zone envelope. And you should never fly outside of your ability. You should always fly just slightly outside of your comfort because that will expand your abilities. If you're always flying between those two edges, you're going to keep pushing. You're going to keep getting better. And you're not, it's like that old saying, do you have 100 hours or do you have 100 at the same hour? I'd rather have 100 hours and each one being slightly different than running from it. That's a good point. Excellent. I think that, that that's a really good point that people can apply again to like staying proficient in the types of things that unfortunately put pilots at, at so much risk of IMC flight and things like that is how do you, it's, it's one thing to do it if you're just continuing to just check a box and stay current or fly the same approach into the same airport. But is that really preparing you and keeping you uh, agile? And I think one of the good things, of course, is that we are part of a community and a craft that as a whole, is about education, is about push, pushing and staying on top of things. 
Um, so hopefully that, that, uh, the, you know, that, that keeps that going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. Um, now, obviously we're in a different kind of world at the moment. Uh, uh, what would, what would each of you be doing if this were th- this time of year, you know, in, in a normal season, um, where would you each be? <laughs> Rob, where would you be right now? I would have just left Oshkosh from the IAC board meeting and be on my way to my next year show right now. That's what I'd be. Yeah, and I would have just been, what is today? Today is 28th. I would have been coming home from Columbus, Mississippi air show. Wow. And how are yeah. you, how are you staying, staying current? And, and what are you doing to, to, to do your best to stay on top of your craft as it is now? Well, my airplane is here. I'm lucky enough to have it in Boston. As you know, we just painted it in California, it came here and, this is an airplane actually that I never competed in uh, aerobatics. So I had, a, I had an extra before this one that I competed in, but never this one. And the ailerons were just, they were good, but they weren't great. And so uh, the, an aerobatic airplane to a guy like Rob and I, uh, it's, it's what you use as an athlete. And every one of those airplanes, they may look the same, but they're, they fly very differently for the pilot. So Rob likes his ailerons one way. I like mine another way. And Rob told me the other day, he hates the way my airplane that I would hate his ailerons. So, um, and then, so we've actually, we've been working on, uh, an aileron, uh, spade tape gapping all of this configuration. Just, I've done got a ton of like 10 minute flights out, roll it at different speeds, make it just so we get it. Cause I've never had the opportunity to sort of tweak the airplane so it's perfect for me so we're using this time to do that excellent now when you say the ailerons are different do you mean like an adjustment or literally different slightly different shapes or slight different like what what does that even mean shapes on shapes on the on the on the the spades if you've ever seen the things that hang out the bottom of the wings so those are called counterbalances or shovels uh in uh slang term and then the way the aileron sits is it is it raised up in the aileron well is it lowered down into the into the stream and because what what you're trying to do or for me anyway i want the center part of the of the movement of the stick to be incredibly solid right to almost feel like the the sticks in cement but then when i move it outside of a certain range all of the force of the aileron goes away Oh, snatch right so it i like the airplanes the ailerons a little snatchy so it almost comes out of your hand once it gets out there but then that also gives me the ability to pull the airplane back as hard as i want and stop it so when i when i try to stop a roll i envision that the airplane's going to come up and smack a wall and just stop as hard as it can and to me um the the way i do that is through having the aileron set up just a perfect way that that i like them so they're basically adjustments they're just very you would be amazed at the slightest little washer that moves the spade a quarter of a degree makes a huge difference in the way that the airplane flies wow it's all personal preference of how you like the airplane to feel and you can fine-tune it to to your preferences now it does take a while though it takes it's a lot of trial and error uh, and a little bit of voodoo magic and rob what are you flying these days I fly an MXS. And is this, this, is this, how long have you had this aircraft? So I've been flying an MX since 2007. I started off in an MX2. I had that till 2011 and I transitioned to an MXS. 
And I had that till a couple of years ago, and then the engine blew up, had a catastrophic engine failure over Texas, put it down, bandage strip, plane. I was fine, plane did his job, but plane got totaled. So I had another one built, and I just got that in July last year. Wow. It's almost a carbon copy of what I had before. How did you, how, how did that end up as far as like, where did you land? I was, I was through my first air strip 2018. I was leaving NAS Kingsville down there in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I was flying up the coast going to Louisiana. I was 11,500 feet and got this vibration and there was a big bang and a big chunk of something flew up over my head and wow. started vibrating and that was it. The engine was gone, gone, gone. It actually had split into two pieces and uh, ripped itself off the engine mount. The only thing holding the engine to the airplane was the cowl. Oh, my God. But, um, but, you know, this is probably another example of, like, good training and practicing. And it doesn't have to be, like, aerobatic stuff to, to practice all the time. It's just general airmanship. You know, all the private pilot training came back and what do you do? And weighed my options and found a field to put it down in. Turned out it was an abandoned airstrip, even though in the GPS is marked as a private strip. And... It all worked to the last moment. And what happened was a few months earlier, Hurricane Harvey had gone through. There it was in Rockport, Texas, where it made landfall. And it had taken a big piece of somebody's roof and put it on the runway. Oh, since God. it was a banded strip, it was still there. My canopy was covered with oil. I couldn't see anything. So I touched down. I remember thinking, Phew. and then I hit something and I was sliding in the belly for a thousand feet off the runway. And it, it wasn't until the next day that I actually walked the runway and I saw the piece of the roof and the tire marks and, and the belly marks that I actually realized what happened. Oh, man. Well, at least uh, at least it all worked out with what really matters, which, of course, is yourself yeah. and not the airplane. And then now we get to see you do a whole bunch of different things in NXS, which is a probably yeah. for the rest of us. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's definitely amazing. So um, are, 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 and are you flying now to keep current? Uh, and, and doing what you can? No, I flew all of March in my airplane, practicing down in Louisiana. And then this stuff started hitting, and I hopped a flight home just to try to see what was going to happen. And now we are where we are. So I'm kind yeah. of stuck here in lockdown in New Hampshire, and my airplane is still down in Louisiana. Yeah. Now, Michael, I know uh, you, we had talked. I know uh, your, uh, your flight school, you're able to do a little bit of flying now. Uh, uh, what are you doing for, for flying? Yeah, not, not really so much. We're, um, we're allowing people to fly the, to rent the airplane solo that, so they can stay current and proficient, but we're not doing any dual flight instruction. And we allow the airplanes to fly once a day. Mm -hmm. And so one person can get at it every 24 hours. And then we completely sanitize and clean the airplane. We let it sit for 24 hours before somebody else is allowed to, to rent the airplane. And we, we flip people. So fly one airplane one day, one airplane the next day. So, um, if there was ever anything uh, that that got into the airplane, it would die over the over the next couple of days before somebody else was to get in it. But we clean the airplane really well, and it's been fine. I think people just they want to stay proficient. And the weather's, as you know, in New England hasn't been great uh, the mm. past few weeks or months. So the the flying days have been few and far between. But when we've had some pretty good weather, people have been out flying. Yeah. So any 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 thoughts about? Um... Uh, what you you're I know no one can really be a good predictor right now of anything, but are uh, I'm, we're all hoping uh, that we'll still be able to see each of you fly um, sometime towards towards the end. Is is are any shows still at least on the calendar um, for the year? 
Yeah, for us, I mean, I, I think there's still a question mark of, of Oshkosh. It's obviously, it's pretty early. It's in July. So I know that they're thinking about very, very hard what, what to do there. And, and Jack Belton will make the right decision for sure. Um, but then after that, for me, the next air show is in late August. So I'm hopeful that August, September, October, and early November will still be air show months for us. So we, we get, you know, I don't know if it would be half a season, but uh, five or six air shows anyway. Definitely. And Rob, what about you? Same, same type schedule? Yeah, about the same. So far, all my shows up through end of August have canceled except for one, and that's just a matter of time. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's kind of hoping the same thing, you know, preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Right. Um, but you know, worst case, it's going to be an amazing 2021 season. So <laughs> boy, I'll tell you the enthusiasm that I really think will come out of the woodwork throughout general aviation. When all of this comes back, I think is going to be something we've never seen before. And that's really something yeah. to look forward to. Um, hopefully we'll salvage something out of this, but, um, uh, uh, again, uh, I, I cannot thank you both enough for joining us tonight. It's been such a treat. Learned so much. Um, uh, sorry if uh, I tried to pass some of the questions on that we got from the audience, but uh, there's many more that we haven't had time to get to. And so with that, I, again, I'd just like to say thank you so much, Michael Goulian. Really, really appreciate it. And Rob Holland, it is so wonderful that you both took time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. Well, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. You're yeah, very, it's very been awesome. Thank you very much, for sure. Thank you. And to everyone else, again, I'd just like to give you a quick heads up. We have uh, a few more great shows coming. We're going to continue this. It's every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And that kicks off next week with our evening of legendary women, Martha King, Julie Clark, Pia Berkvist, and Jolie Lucas. Really uh, amazing stuff. Then week after that, on Tuesday, May 12th, we have High Altitude Night with SR-71 pilots, Phil Susi and Ed Yielding. It's going to be amazing. They're going to talk, among other things, uh, about flying the SR-71 and their record-breaking flight of uh, L.A. to Washington, D.C. in one hour, four minutes. Uh, can't imagine doing that. And we even have a maintenance night coming up on the 19th with Tempest Aero Group and Mike Bush. Um, it's just going to be one thing after another. Our mission here at Social Flight and at Social Flight Live in this program to keep education happening and to give us all a community way that we can connect during this difficult time. And so, again, thank you all for joining us so much. Michael and Rob, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate having you here. And to everyone else, please uh, uh, check out and register if you want to see more programs, socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps. It's how you can find all the different things happening, as well as what airport restaurants are open for safe takeout practices and many, many other things going on. Until next time, thank you both. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.